Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Evan. Uh, if for those of you who don't know me, I'm on staff here at the church, and uh, today I have been given the amazing privilege and blessing to bring forth God's word today. Um, today we're looking at and continuing our study of First and Second Timothy. We're actually going to be wrapping up First Timothy here today. Uh, next week, moving on to Second Timothy. Uh, but before we begin, let's open in a word of prayer uh, as we start. Father God, you are so good and so wonderful and so amazing. You've allowed each of us to come here today and to worship in your name and to be reminded of your amazing grace and your love for us. Father, as we look to study your word, I pray that you will be with us today. Allow these words that are spoken here to be yours and not mine, Lord. And Father, please just be with me and strengthen me as a as I am a broken man in need of your grace, Lord. And let us each have ears to hear, to have hearts that will receive your truth in all things. We ask that you will be with us now, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So back in high school, uh, if, believe it or not, I was a runner, and I ran cross-country. I know it doesn't look like it now. It's been a few years. Um, but I was a runner for my school's cross-country team, and where I was never the best runner on the team, one year I did well enough that I was able to qualify to run at our regional meet, the WPIAL out in Western PA. Uh, and I was able to qualify for that meet, and it's a big deal because the winners of that meet would go on to the state championships here in Hershey. And so leading up to this race, I decided to really train as hard as I could so that I could perform the best that I could at running in this regional race. So the day the race came, I was really excited. I was very nervous. Um, but not only was I excited to run, uh, I also knew that there was going to be a girl that was going to be there that I had a crush on at the time. And so I was excited to see her too. And that might seem like a weird piece of information, but it's important for later. Just tuck that into the... Tuck that into the back of your mind. So as I'm getting ready for this race, what we do with our team is we always walk the course. Uh, so throughout this walk, my coach is giving us different advice. Hey, take this hill really hard. Slow down here. It's a little bit wet. It was a cold and rainy and uh, snowy day that day. And one of the things that he had said was always keep your eye on the course because you never know where your feet are going to be placed. You need to be looking at that. And so this continued throughout this entire walk, and uh, we saw that uh, this course at Slippery Rock, PA, it, it opened up into a straightaway right at the end, and then at the top of the straightaway, it was a 180-degree turn into another straightaway to the finish line. And so we, we look at this, I'm like, okay, that'll be, a, that'll be a real good because it's a straightaway right to the finish line downhill. And so we started making these final strategies for the race, and we were preparing, and we got ready, we took our positions, and bam, the gun went off. And throughout the majority of this race, I wasn't doing too terrible. Uh, I, I kept going, I kept pushing forward, I wanted to make a respectable time. However, just about that time, right at the end, that's when things started to go really wrong for me. As I mentioned earlier, there was a girl at this race that I had a crush on, and throughout this whole race, she had located herself at different places at several of the different turns so that she would cheer me on. And as I'm running this final section, I'm running up this first straightaway, and I see her on the other straightaway, and I get into my head and I think, all right, this is a perfect time to impress her. 
So as I made this turn and I'm getting ready to run down this final straightaway towards uh, the, the finish line, I did the coolest thing that I could ever think of as a high school boy. I winked and did the finger guns. So, you know, it was like one of these. And in the time, the split second that I did the finger guns and the wink, I took my eyes off of the course, the exact opposite thing that my coach told me not to do, and my foot fell in a hole, and I went sliding. So not only did I do this in front of this girl that I had a crush on, I did this in front of my coach, who was not so happy that I uh, blew the race there, and he proceeded to uh, very much encourage me to get up and finish. Uh, so I proceeded to get up, limp the last 100 yards to the finish line, and I finished the race. But I got distracted, and I did not finish that race well uh, in that instance. The only uh, good thing that comes from this story is six years later, I did marry that girl, that it was Janine, so <laughs> that's the only good thing of that story. But, <laughs> but yeah, in, the, in and of this itself, I did not accomplish the mission that I had set out to do initially of running the race and winning so that I could go to the state championship. And uh, as we turn to... Paul's, I know I'm just shifting right to the scripture here, but as, I, as we turn to Paul's final words in this first letter to Timothy, he's going to use similar athletic instructions here. He's going to talk to Timothy about fighting a good fight and understand what it looks like for Timothy to finish his race well. And so as we do this, let's look at uh, some of the issues that, that Paul has discussed thus far in 1 Timothy He's discussed uh, some of the subjects of false teaching, the importance of prayer, the roles of men and women in the church. He's talked about the qualifications for church leaders. He's given instructions for widows and, and slaves, and he's given the danger of materialism throughout this letter. Now, this is a very wide variety of topics that has been covered, and we might wonder what is of utmost importance to Paul in this instance as he begins to close this first letter. And I believe the statement that sums up this letter is, is Paul's final words to Timothy found in verse 12, which is, fight the good fight of, for the faith. And this is similar language that Paul uses in chapter 1 when he told Timothy to wage the good warfare. And so at the beginning and the end of this letter, Paul is using this athletic imagery to remind him that he was in a battle for his faith. He was in a battle for the faith, the gospel. And as followers of Christ, that's a realization that we need to have today. So with that being said, let's go ahead and dive into the passage today. If you would, please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're going to be in verses 11 through 21. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, there are some around the room on the tables, uh, but it will be on the big screen as well. And if you would, once you find your spot, please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate 
made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on, uncertainty, on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the gospel, or guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. You might be seated. The first point that we're going to look at today are the qualities of the man and woman of God. Take another look at verses 11 through the first part of 12. Paul writes, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Within these first couple verses, Paul first admonishes Timothy here. He, he says, but for you, O man of God, and I want you to notice that in this verse, this is intended to get Timothy's intention here. It's a contrast between the false teachers who, who in their false doctrine and the materialistic kind of philosophy are, are preaching, compared to Timothy, who is the man of God. He, Paul's writing, you should avoid that. Don't be like them. You are a man of God. He uses that title now for Timothy, and we should take note of that. Uh, this is a very Old Testament-oriented term. Within the Old Testament, there, it is most often used of the prophets of God. And it, there's, this is not an exhaustive list, but Moses was called a man of God. Samuel the prophet was called a man of God. Elijah, Elisha, David, they were called men of God. And so what does it mean to be a man of God? Well, a man of God is, is someone who loves and walks and knows God, walks with God. It's a man who has God at the center of his life. A man, uh, it's, it's a man or woman of God that, that, that seeks to know God, who is called by God in all things, who, uh, who knows God personally, loves his word. That's what it means. And I think the most concise statement that, that we can offer for what a man and a woman of God is, is it's someone who has God at the center of their lives. And so Timothy here is instructed. He is, a, he is the man of God. In contrast, these false teachers who are preaching falsely uh, about God. So now that Paul has Timothy's attention, he, he lists the qualities of a man of God. And the first quality is that he runs from or flees from certain things. And so what is, the question is, what is he fleeing? What is he running from? And the context in the answer here is that he's to flee from false doctrine, from false preaching, from the false teaching of those who say that, hey, true godliness is just a way to get rich. We're to flee from sin. We're to flee from all of those things. That's what Paul's getting at here. We are to flee everything that is evil that pulls you away from God. 
Now, that might seem uh, more like running than fighting in this instance, but let me remind you that sometimes running is the best way to avoid defeat. You know, if I were to go down the street and there's like this 300-pound linebacker that's intending to do me harm, my hand-to-hand combat skills are not going to be enough to make me survive this instance. I run in that instance. I get out of there. That's the best strategy, to run in that instance. We run from every temptation. We run from every sin. And that's just a warning for each of us. Sin, you know, it usually starts slowly and subtly, sometimes with a glance or a thought, sometimes with a kiss or a purchase. Sin, it sneaks up with you, and don't flirt with that danger. We are to run, get out of there, run from that sin. We should also run from sinful desires, In verses 9 through 10, Paul talked about sinful desires, such as the desire for riches and the love of money, cravings that pull us away from God in those instances. We run from those desires. And if we're going to be people of God, men and women of God, then we have to flee things that are ungodly, flee things that are wicked, flee things that are evil, sinful, unrighteous, all of that. We get away from that. And I think a really good example of this is Joseph in Genesis 39. Joseph, he was hired by Potiphar in Egypt to steward over Potiphar's household and things. Well, Mrs. Potiphar decided that uh, Joseph was very good-looking and handsome, and at one point she had eyes for Joseph, started making passes at him, and she just wanted to get involved with Joseph, and finally she grabbed a hold of him and said, Joseph, come lie with me. But what does the Bible say? Joseph ran. He didn't say in that little high, squeaky voice, do you think we can talk about this for a moment? You know, that's not what he did. He, he got out of there. He took off. He fled from those sinful desires. That's a good example of what we should be doing. We also have a bad example. The opposite of, is true, and we look at the example of David. He was on the rooftop. He saw Bathsheba in the next courtyard. And when David should have gotten off that roof and ran out of there, he instead got off the roof, ran to his sinful desires. Instead of running, he ran towards the sin. He looked, he saw, he lusted, he went into this lady, and he committed one of the greatest sins of his life. And we saw how affected David was by this. In Psalm 51, he writes, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. David's example, it shows us the rift that that sin creates in our lives between us and God. And that's why the man and the woman of God, that we must flee from those things in all instances. By the way, we are responsible to do the fleeing, right? We can't be pursuing sin while still asking God to deliver us from that. You know, if, if we have a problem with alcohol... I I can't just show up to the bar saying, Lord, lead me not from temptation, lead me not from temptation. That doesn't work. We're to flee, we're to actively, proactively do that where we get out of those situations. Don't Don't put yourself in those temptations. We're to flee from that. What's the second quality? The second quality of the man and woman of God is that they pursue. Paul writes, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. The first thing that Paul lists here is righteousness. We must pursue righteousness. And the righteousness, what it means here is upright thinking and living. Those who are righteous 
will live their lives fully for God in all instances. Godliness, the second term, is one of Paul's favorite terms throughout this letter of 1 Timothy. We've heard it several times over the course of the last several weeks. And godliness here, it refers to this godly belief and behavior. We, we, it's how we relate to God. Basically, it means I worship God, I pray to God, I, I talk to God, I sing to God in all instances of my life. I love God. That's godliness. Faith, the third term, is it's this concept of faithfulness. We are to live devoted lives to God. We are to live obedient lives to his word. We're the, the man and woman of God. They're, they're the ones who trust God with all of our paths, with all of our ways. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 speaks to this. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. That's what faith is. Love. That is the fruit of the Spirit, which is produced in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We love God. We love the church. We have a love for the lost of this world. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he, God, first loved us. That is love. Steadfastness. It's, it's this concept of endurance. When we endure, the word literally means to remain under. And so when we go about our lives, we are to remain under this, this, this endurance, under this pressure. We continue, we keep going, we persevere in all things. And we do it until Jesus comes to bring us home. We keep going. That's endurance. That's steadfastness. Now gentleness, this word gentleness, it can be translated as meekness. Um, now meekness, it sometimes gets a bad rap, but meekness does not mean weakness. Okay, meekness does not mean weakness. And the best definition that I have come across for meekness is power under control. Think about a horse, right? These horses are big, powerful creatures. And it, it is obedient to its rider. And if, it, if it's obedience to its rider, it's called a meek horse. That's a term that they use. They can throw the rider off at any moment if they choose to, but they remain obedient to that rider. And so, it, whenever we say meekness, it doesn't mean that we are weak. It just means that we have power. Uh, we have control under power. A godly person, it's one who surrenders everything to God in all instances. Their attitudes, their motive, their heart's actions, um, all of that is under the influence of God and the Holy Spirit. That's gentleness. So, so far, we understand that these qualities of a man and woman of God, it's to first flee and then to follow after God. This leads us to the third mark of a man and woman of God, which is to fight. Verse 12, the first part of that says, to fight the good fight of the faith. If we profess to follow Christ, then we are involved in a spiritual war at all times, whether we realize it or not. We are involved in a spiritual battle. In the Bible, it is so clear on this when we look through the pages of Scripture. We are in wartime, not peacetime. This truth can be found all over Scripture. Hebrews 12.4, it says that we are at war against sin. 1 Peter 2.11 talks about the war that takes place within our souls. For, uh, in Jude 3, it talks about the struggle for our faith. And in both 2 Corinthians 6.7 as well as 10.4, it talks about the, the weapons that believers possess to do battle. 
And then finally, Ephesians 6.12 reminds us that our battle, it's not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, against the, the world powers of this darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. We are involved in this spiritual war. Every Christian, every believer, his or her faith, we might be under attack in, in numerous ways. Sometimes the battle, it's for a marriage. Sometimes the battle is between a parent and a child. For many men today, their, their mind is a battleground for purity. And as we saw in the previous section that Pastor Mike talked through last week, there's a battle fought against materialism in this world. Needless to say, the Christian life, it's not just simply an exercise of coasting along. That's not the Christian life. And I don't think this struggle just applies to Christians. It affects non-Christians as well. There is a spiritual battle raging for their souls each day. Followers of Christ should not take this spiritual battle lightly. When the enemy, it's, it, he seeks to destroy. He's very formidable in this fight. He seeks to discredit God's glory. He seeks to uh, distort the gospel, destroy God's people. He wants to wreck our marriages. He wants to destroy our relationships. He wants to just absolutely corrupt our purity and attack our integrity and at all costs keep us from knowing the truths of the glory of God and spreading the gospel. We fight this fight each day, and this fight involves every language, every people, every nation, every tribe, every family member, every single life. We do not get to choose whether or not we are involved in this battle. So we can't just ignore it and hope that we just survive it and make it out alive. The Bible doesn't say, well, go ahead and ignore the devil and he will flee from you. That's not what James tells us. In here, it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We resist. If we try to avoid this war, pretending there is no struggle to be had, we will not survive. Pastor David Platt, I think, says it best, and he says, spiritual retreat only leads to spiritual defeat. We got to be present in this battle. There is a God in this world who wants to be with his people, wants them to be saved. But then there is a God, lowercase g, who wants all people to burn in hell. There's a battle raging for your friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, and for all the people in this world. And how we fight this battle has eternal implications. The enemy does not want us to believe. He does not want us to live out or spread the gospel. Is he succeeding in your life? Are you even aware that you're at war? Paul tells us to fight the good fight for the faith. This is a good fight. It's a fight for peace and for confidence and for hope. And it's not just for you, but it's so that others too will escape everlasting torment and experience eternal life. This is a good fight, but it does not mean it's easy. Paul then goes on to give a charge to Timothy. He says this in verses, uh, the rest of verse 12 through uh, 16. He says, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who, is, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we, he will display at the proper time. 
He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. When we look at this section of of Scripture, Paul makes it clear that, that we pursue holiness and we fight this good fight. But it doesn't mean that that followers of Christ gain their own righteousness through self-effort, right? Our initial righteousness, as well as the godliness, faith, and every other aspect of our ongoing sanctification has been bought by Jesus Christ, by our faith in Jesus Christ who came and died on the cross for us. And it's only when we are in Christ, only when we are in Christ, that these things become a reality to us by the power of the Spirit. Paul said in the second half of verse 12, Take hold of that eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That, that phrase, to take hold, it's literally to grasp, to hold on tightly, not to let go. Eternal life, it's freely given for God has called us to it, but we have to fight to take hold of it each day. In effect, Paul is instructing believers, experience the life to which you have been given. Timothy has already received eternal life when Christ called him and he repented of his sins. But that's not the end of the story. And it's true for all of us who are followers of Christ. When we are in Christ and when we have his life in us, when we have him in us, we struggle on a daily basis with sin and with other temptations. And ultimately, we struggle to fulfill this, the the, the fullness of this promise. And until that day in the future when Christ returns and brings us home, we must continually grasp on to this life that we have been given, this life that Christ has bought for us. And I know, I know it seems hard, and for, for the brothers and sisters who are here that might seem like this, this battle of the Christian life is, is too daunting, Paul offers several encouragements in this, in, this te- in this text. He says first that God has called you by your name. You are a child of God. You are not fighting against God. He is fighting with you. Second, we have confessed our faith. We have sought to confess our faith in front of the witnesses. You have taken your stand. We have taken our stand with Jesus. And we have demonstrated, most notably when we are baptized in the presence of our family and the witnesses who are here, and we say, my life, it's, it's in Jesus. I have died to sin. I have been raised to new life. So in view of these truths, we live in the light of God's presence. Paul charged Timothy in the presence of God. God is with us, and so we fight this battle knowing that the creator of all things is on our side. And as believers, we should also live in view of Christ's faithfulness. Paul said that Christ gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate. When the Son of God was on the line before Pontius Pilate, before he was crucified, he made a good confession. Jesus confessed his kingship, and it cost him his life. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus, who is the Savior, died for you on that cross, and he stands beside you today in that battle. Moreover, Jesus is the king who is coming for you. Verses 14 in the first part of 15 says that we are to walk in obedience until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. We fight the battle of our faith each day with our eyes looking to the sky, longing and and looking for the appearing of our Lord, Jesus. We continue to pursue godliness because we know Christ is returning. He will be back. Paul then proceeds to list several ways in which we are to live in awe of God's presence. 
And in verses 15 and 16, Paul here, he is, he is exploding into one of the most magnificent and majestic, majestic and glorious hymns of praise to God in all of Scripture. He writes, He who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in the unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Consider what Paul talks about when he refers to God here. First, his rule is universal. God is sovereign over all things. He is the blessed and only sovereign. Second, his rule is invincible. He is the king of kings, lord of lords. No one can match him. Third, he is immortal. His immortality, he is alone immortal. He is beyond time. He's from everlasting to everlasting. He dwells in the unapproachable light. God lives in this atmosphere of blinding holiness. He's inconceivable. No one can see him or has ever seen him. He, no one can fathom his greatness, his amazingness. He is utterly transcendent. He possesses all power. He's eternal. He's omnipotent. His, all, all of that might is his. And he deserves all praise. To God belongs all glory and honor. Each of these statements, it's rooted in Scripture throughout the Old Testament. And it should bring comfort to us when we feel overwhelmed in this battle, in this fight. As believers, we are, we are, we're charged to fight this good fight of faith. But we can take heart knowing that we are not alone. We have the creator of all things backing us in all instances. In Joshua 1.9, God is speaking to Joshua and he says this, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's amazing. That's the truth that we can live with. This brings us into the third aspect of what the man, of, man and woman of God should possess, which is generosity. Paul writes in verses 17 through 19, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, in verses 17 through 19, Paul's returning to this issue of materialism. The very thing that he addressed earlier in verses 5 through 10, which Pastor Mike spoke about last week. He returns to that. So why does he go back? You know, why does he do this? And why does he look at materialism, then talks about fighting the good fight of faith, back to materialism? Why does he break it up like that? Well, I think that there's a method to what Paul is doing here. Paul here, he first speaks about the contentment that, is to be had, that comes along with godliness. That's in verse 6. And that's something that we must fight for. We see that in verses 11 through 14. And one way in which we fight for contentment here is to be generous with what we have. That is this section of Scripture. Paul has warned that there are, there, there are false teachers who say, godliness, it's a way to get rich. But now he wants to bring, uh, bring it all back into view and point out that, yes, there are some Christians in the Ephesian church who had money. 
And now, it is possible for a Christian to be rich in the world. It's not a sin to have money, right? It's not a sin to do that. But, but Paul proceeds to give some instructions for those who, who are wealthy in this world. First, Paul instructs believers to flee from self-confidence. In verse 17, he says to Timothy, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, or, nor to set their, un, their hopes on uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It should come as no surprise that possessions can sometimes produce pride. We like to think our security is not based on our stuff, but as soon as we think about giving all of that away, we, our insecurities, they kind of rise and we're like, no, 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 I want to keep that. So we, we flee from this self-confidence that we have in our material stuff. Second, we are to flee self-centeredness. Riches, they're, they're not to lead us to be haughty, but they, they, they can cause us, they, they can cause us to hope in ourselves at times. And when we begin to look at everything that we have acquired in this world, we get a certain sense of self-worth based on that, based on our accomplishments. And Paul says, don't be deceived. That kind of thinking will kill us. Flee from self-centeredness. Flee from self-confidence. And the third thing that Paul tells us, and what I, what I think is the most important thing, is to focus on God. We need more of the giver and not more of the gifts. The second half of verse 17, Paul says that, that we set our hope on God, the one who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We set our mind on him. God is the great provider. We place our hope in him, not these material possessions that we may have. In verses 18 through 19, Paul then instructs those with wealth and possessions on what they are to do with these riches. And he writes this, They are to do good and to be rich in every good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So in response to God's goodness, we give good things in order that we may live out the faith that we have been entrusted Paul says, if you want to be rich in something, be rich in good works. Be rich in generosity. The biblical antidote for materialism, it's, in, it's extravagant generosity in all things. We invest good things in our lives. We invest good, thing in the, in good things in the lives of others. We set our sights on giving, not hoarding. We set our sights on sacrificing, not indulging. We store up treasures for ourselves as a good foundation for the age to come so that we may take hold, that grasping, that we may take hold of that which is truly life. The man and woman of God, they're to be generous in all aspects of life. But let, let me be very clear that this does not just mean monetary possessions, monetary riches. Believers are to be generous with their time. Believers are to be generous with their giftings, not just their money and their material possessions. Each one of us is called to be generous, whether that's going and helping a neighbor change a, a tire on their lawnmower. You know, we take that time and we love on that person. We are to be generous in all areas of our life. This leads us to the, the final responsibility of the man of God. Paul concludes his letter to Timothy by explaining the rep responsibility that Timothy has. He says this in verses 20 through 21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. 
In these verses, Paul is giving this closing charge to Timothy as as the one who was chosen to shepherd the church in Ephesus. Timothy is told to guard that which uh, he has been entrusted with, guard all spiritual truth. That's That's the whole of the Christian faith, at the center of which is the gospel. He's to guard that. That's the good news of Christ's death and resurrection. Don't let anybody distort that truth, Timothy. Don't let anybody distort that truth. Guard it in all instances. And these foundational truths, they were under attack in Ephesus, and they continue to be under attack throughout the church history, at all times and all places today, even. For this reason, we too, as men and women of God, must, be, must fight to be faithful for the gospel, to be faithful to the gospel. Paul returns to the exhortation he began with and the themes that he has touched on throughout this letter, to hold fast to the truths of the gospel. Consider some of the ways in which this theme has been woven throughout these six chapters. Timothy, he has been instructed to, uh, in the following ways, he's been instructed to stop others from teaching different doctrine in chapter one, to hold on to the faith and to hold on to good conscience. He is to appoint elders who can teach the word. He is to devote themselves to the public reading of scripture, exhortation, and teaching. He is to keep watch on himself and his teaching. He is to fight the good fight and keep the commandment without fault or without failure. So why is it so important that we have to hold on to the gospel? What's at stake? First, it is for our sake that we must remain in this truth. In this letter, Paul talked about those who have wandered from the truth. Some have been delivered to Satan. We see that in chapter 1, verse 20. We also see that others have been pierced with many pains for departing from the faith. In chapter 6, verse 10, we should not be so arrogant as to think that this could, ever ha- this could never happen to us. Don't be arrogant and think that. We will be tempted every day to let go of the gospel. We will be tempted every day by the enemy's attacks. That is why Paul referred to the Christian life as a fight. We fight for our sake. But not only for our sake, there's a second reason in which we, might, we must hold the gospel fast. It's for the sake of others. And think of this in two levels. First, for those who are outside of the church. And second, for those who are inside of the church. For those outside of the church, those who are separated from God, we must preach and we must share the gospel with them. We must fight fear and timidity and distractions in order to make the good news known for those people so that they would be saved. Don't be scared to do that. For those inside of the church, clinging to the truth is essential. If we don't, we can easily become like so many churches in today's world. So many churches that have ceased to exist as New Testament Christian churches. The church landscape, it has changed so drastically in Western Europe and across the United States. It's littered with churches that once used to preach the gospel, but now, no, they have since left the gospel behind. There are scores of churches where the truth of God is at best a minimal role. There are churches filled with man-pleasing sermons and ideas that appeal to this world, all while ignoring the truths that are found in this word. In Galatians 1, 8-9, Paul says that if anyone, even an angel, preaches another gospel, then that person stands under God's judgment. 
So we must tightly cling to this word in all instances. Paul concludes this letter. He says, grace be with you. When Paul writes this, this word you, we, we, like, we think of it in our English word, uh, like English terms. We see you and it's a singular thing. In the Greek, it's actually plural. So when he says you, he's talking about y'all. All right? Y'all. He's talking about y'all. So basically, grace is saying, peace be with you all. Grace be with you all. Paul had the entire church in mind when he's writing this. It's, it's, it's comforting to know that these truths are just as much for us today as it was back then. And we're never alone in this fight of faith. When Paul wrote this letter, he knew that Timothy would not be able to do this on his own. And the same holds true for us. And even Paul in Colossians 1, 28 through 29, Paul talks about working hard in his ministry. And he says, for this I toil, struggling with all energy, that he, he God, powerfully works within me. Notice here, Paul, he, he strived, but it was God who provided the strength for Paul to go out and do his ministry. And it's reassuring to know that we're not alone in our spiritual battles. If you have put your trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, be encouraged in your spiritual battle. For, believe, for as believers, we do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. Our ultimate triumph in this battle is assured because Christ himself has conquered sin and death. We have seen the victory. So as we close today, I'm, I'm reminded... Uh, by a news article that I stumbled across this week when I was uh, reading a little bit on the sermon, trying to get everything prepared. And this article is from the New York Times. And this article, it was all about people who have climbed the 14 highest mountains in the world. Now, the Himalayan and the Karakoum mountain range, it's in Asia. There's a picture of it right there. They're home to all 14 of the uh, Earth's 800-meter peaks, or uh, we're Americans here, sorry, the 26,000-foot peaks, um, some of these mountains, they have familiar names. You know, we, we know of an Everest, we know of a K2, Annapura. These are really big mountains. Now, it is reported by the record books that only 44 people have ever reached the summit of all 14 of these mountains. Only 44 people. However, recently, this record has been challenged. It's by cha been challenged by these mountaineering experts who have said that it is possible that in fact, that record is not true. It's possible that no one has actually touched the top of all 14 of these mountains. The difference here, it relies on this question, what is a summit? There's this guy, his name is Ed Vestures, who believes he knows. He's one of the 44 people who have said to climb. He's the only American on that list. And in 1993, climbing alone without any supplemental oxygen or ropes, he reached the summit of the, the world's 14th highest mountain, the Shishkapangma. Most climbers, once they reach the central peak, they go ahead and turn around. They call it good enough, I'm done. But before him stood this narrow spine. It was about 300 feet. It was a knife edge of snow with drops off to the side to oblivion. At the end of this mountain, at the end of that little course, was the mountain's true peak up there. And so Ed, he stood there, he, and he told himself, that's too dangerous, I'm not going to do that. And he proceeded to retreat down the mountain. After reflecting on his experience, he said, you know, I'm one of those guys where if the last nail isn't hammered into the deck, it's not done. 
And so eight years later, Ed decided to go back to that mountain and reach the top of the Shishkapanga. That is him climbing up that, 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 uh, that uh, spine right there. And so this summit here, it, there's the summit and then there's everything below the summit. And so can we ever be close enough? That's the question. What is the summit? Researchers, they have raised these doubts and are raising standards for future climbers. And there are some who have stopped at that central peak, not daring to straddle the, the ridge the way that Ed did in this picture. Others have turned around at this popular selfie-taking spot and not scaling the, the, the mountain with the perilous ridge behind it. And climber and author Dave Roberts, he says, the summit does matter, and why does it matter? Because that's the whole point of mountaineering. It's the goal that defines the ascent. Another Australian explorer says people are stopping too short because it's too hard. And I say that's not a good excuse for a climber. These climbers, they have stopped short of the goal in which they set out for, not truly completing the mission. And similarly, let us be aware of the danger of giving up before we reach the finish line of the Christian faith. Thinking that close enough is good enough does not cut it. It leaves us short of the prize. We are called to fight this fight because it is a good fight. Don't be like those climbers who say, you know what, good enough, that's too hard. Don't be like that. There is a spiritual battle raging in each of our lives today whether it's for your marriage, whether it's for parenting, your relationships, emotions. Be encouraged that, that from our text today, we have a God who is there with us, fighting in that battle. Let this word comfort us in all things. Let it strengthen us in this good fight for the faith and all things that we do. Let us be men of women of God who, who seek God in all instances, all ways. Let us fight and continue to run that race until we eventually reach the finish line. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, you are so good. Your mercies are never-ending. And for those of us who are broken, and actually all of us who are broken, Lord, I ask that you'll come alongside of us and you'll help us finish this race. You'll help us fight this battle. Because, God, without you, we cannot do it. We need you, Father. Help us each day to live as men and women who are devoted to you, who seek to relive righteous and godly lives, knowing that it is not us and our abilities who ultimately accomplish this, but it's you and your Holy Spirit who is indwelled in us that has given us that ability. Father, we might not always see the finish line, Lord, but we know it's there. It could be around any of these turns in our lives. And just as we started this race, fully devoted to you, running as hard as we can, let us not stop, let us not stumble, let us not be distracted. Instead, let us power through. Let us finish this race and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Walk with us each day. Guide us. Thank you, Lord. Father, as we now get to the point in our service where we take this offering, Lord, Father, may we be generous with not only our money and our resources, but 
also our time and our giftings. Let us let this time of offering just be a time where we give back to you in whatever form or fashion that might be. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the ability as Americans in the 24th century to have things. But let us not look to things as the the end and the source of our, our joy and our happiness because, Lord, that should be you. And let us use those things to glorify you in all things. May this offering time be, 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 be worth your time, Lord. So be with us now. In your name we pray. Amen.